Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission Network. This week, we're back at Revive 2018, as Tim Keller, Pastor Emeritus of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, speaks on the topic of bringing the gospel to all nations and all cultures without compromising the message. So let's talk about basically evangelism. And I'd like to talk to you about the why, the where, the what, the how. Uh, the why, the where. Why does evangelism happen? Where does it happen? What is it? And how does it happen? Okay, first of all, why does it happen? Now, these first two are not going to sound much like contextualization, but I'll show you why contextualization isn't even a word we need to talk about if you are relational enough in the way in which you do evangelism. Uh, and so, first of all, Evangelism happens when there are what I would call gospel-shaped attitudes and motivations present in you. Uh, I do know there's a... Isn't it that place where in the original Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum says, life will find a way? Do you remember that at all? Uh, They said, no, no, it's absolutely impossible. These dinosaurs cannot reproduce themselves. He says, life will find a way. Remember that? In the way that only Jeff Goldblum can say it. If you have these attitudes, and if you have these motivations I'm about to give you, I probably don't need to give you the rest of the talk because it will find a way. Your love will find a way. You will figure out a way to talk to people about Christ. You'll find a way to do it that is contextual to them. But here's what the four things are. Um, the gospel, if it, has a, if it has its way with you, the gospel gets rid of four things that make it very difficult to do evangelism or to do it well. First of all, gospel removes pride because one of the greatest barriers to effective evangelism is pride. We're either too abrasive or we're just, we just don't seem to be able to sympathize with doubt. There is a, there's a Bible verse, by the way, in the Bible. It's in the book of Jude, probably not your favorite book. But in the book of Jude, it actually says, be merciful to those who doubt. It's a command. Um, and an awful lot of people I've seen talking to non-Christians are nowhere near merciful to people who doubt. Uh, and, it, it's, and I do think here's what the gospel does. The gospel reminds you, you're a sinner saved by grace. Now, if you're a sinner saved by sheer grace, number one, how in the world could you feel superior to anybody else? How can you act superior to anybody else? And then number two, if you're a sinner saved by grace, then you're saved by grace not because you're a better person, which means the non-Christian you're talking to might be a better person than you in many ways. Might be a better father or mother. Might be wiser about things. Uh, because you're not saved by being a good father, mother, or wise. You're saved by grace. And so the gospel should remove the kind of pride that makes us rather unwinsome. Uh, that uh, makes us heavy-handed and abrasive or gives us a very defensive attitude when we're talking to people about the faith. So number one, the gospel removes pride. Secondly, the gospel removes fear. Now, I'll show you how in a way, which means the gospel gives you humility. Then secondly, the gospel removes fear. And the second, I don't know if it's, I don't know, I don't think I should rank these things. Another remarkable reason why people are not effective evangelists is we're cowards. We're afraid. We're afraid to put our head up above the parapet. Uh, and we're afraid of being seen as a fanatic. We're afraid of people thinking ill of us. We're afraid maybe even, uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, relationships can, a lot of jobs come to us through relationships. A lot of 
things happen through relationships and if people start to think of us as a religious fanatic, is that going to hurt us in our job? So uh, the gospel, the reason the gospel can remove fear is because the gospel says it's what, it's what God thinks of you that matters. It's who you are in Christ. It's how you're regarded in Christ. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Uh, the fear we feel about evangelism will show you that you don't believe the gospel even though you say you believe the gospel, to a great degree you don't. Because to a great degree where you're gonna, you're gonna take your self-worth and your self-image not from who you are in Christ and what God thinks about you, but really what people think about you. And therefore the gospel has got to take away that fear or you're gonna be ineffective in evangelism. So first of all, the gospel removes pride. Secondly, it removes fear. Thirdly, it removes pessimism. Now, at this point, I'm, uh, I, I, I don't know where you all are. I know you're, you're, you are of different church connections. At this point, I'll just be uh, honest about the fact that I have my own theology is what we call Reformed theology, and Reformed theology says that if you're a Christian, it's because God opened your heart. Not because you're wiser or more humble than anybody else, but because God opened your heart by sheer grace. But if that's the case, why are we pessimistic? Why do we ever look at anybody and say, that person would never become a Christian? You know, that person would never be, oh, oh, and of course, you are the kind of person who would become a Christian. How wonderful that God got such great raw material with you. No, it says in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. Doesn't just say no one's righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. Nobody. And if anybody, you know, it is not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hast thou not chosen me. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Now, if you believe that, that means that you, are, you would never look at anybody without hope that this person could become a Christian. So uh, the gospel removes pride, it removes fear, it removes pessimism. And then lastly, um, the gospel removes, I guess I'll say, indifference. Let's be, let's be honest about ourselves. If you really, really, really love people around you, you really could not bear to keep silent about the faith. And if you really can bear to keep silent about the faith, I guess the question comes in, to what degree is the gospel filling your heart with love for people? And um, so, put it this way, here's my summary of this, because only the first point, but... I'll, I'll, I'll drive it home. The four major reasons for evangelistic unfruitfulness is a lack of sensitivity, which is helped by gospel humility, a lack of courage, which is helped by gospel boldness, a lack of hope helped by gospel uh, power, and indifferent, a lack of indifference, which is helped by gospel love. And you see, if you see, oh, I know I should be like those things, this isn't a matter of training. Sorry, everybody. I'm not going to be able to help you here. There's a great little verse, I'm not a verse, there's a great little sentence actually in an old John Stott book. I think one of an old, I read it when I was a brand new Christian practically called Motives and Methods in Evangelism. It was a little, little teeny booklet that used to cost 15 cents, 15 pence in America years ago. And he's got this one line in John Stott's little book who says, nothing shuts the mouth, seals the lips, and ties the tongue like the secret poverty of our spiritual experience. Nothing shuts the mouth, seals the lips, and ties the tongue like the secret poverty of our spiritual experience. So, um, now, what am I saying? Let me go back. 
If you have these gospel attitudes and motivations growing in you, this humility, this boldness, this courage, this sensitivity, this love, you'll find a way. <laughs> you know, it will find a way, and and you'll and you will be doing it not in the most abrasive way, but in a way that actually fits the people you're talking to, which is all contextualization is. So that's the first point. The first point is to say, you know, to ask the question, why does why does evangelism happen? It happens really almost naturally when you have uh, these gospel attitudes and motivation. But secondly, I ask the question, where? Where does evangelism happen? Now here again, I'm going to, again, not, I'm still not talking about content, what you actually say. I actually do think that, as I will try to show you, in the end, that what's stopping us in evangelism is not that we don't know what to say. Uh, and actually, of all the things that I could possibly do as a Christian leader to help my people be a bit more evangelistic, of all the things I can do, the easiest is to teach them what to say. I can do that. It's these, these first two things. Why does God, uh, evangelism happen if you have those attitudes? And where does it happen? It happens in your oikos, that is to say, in your natural networks, as long as three things are happening. You're a person of character, you're a person of transparency, and you are intentional about seeking ways to find, uh, uh, seeking to find ways to talk to people about Christ. Let me, let me break that down. This is number two. Where does it happen? In the Bible, it's, it, evangelism happens naturally in your network of relationships. Some of you may have heard this before, but um, the word oikos, which technically is translated household. And through the book of Acts, you can see over and over again, and not just the book of Acts, you see it over and over again, people become Christians and their household. But it's interesting, if you go to, say, Acts 10, um, where is it here? If you go to Acts uh, chapter 10, verse um, yeah, 24, it talks about the fact that Cornelius, uh, it's literally, in the, in the Greek, it says, he brought his oikos together to hear Paul. But what, the, what the good English translations have to do is the English translations say, usually, his family his extended family, his friends, they have to, con they don't just say household, like the NIV, I think, says his, uh, his close friends and his uh, family members. And, and the reason for that is, is that the, uh, we all actually live in these web networks in which we have a number of people who uh, we know very well and there's a certain amount of trust. They can sometimes be your near neighbors. In our situation, they can be the neighbors right around you that actually live, literally live right near you. Secondly, they can be your colleagues, people that you actually work with. Uh, thirdly, well, you, you know, then another sort of network would be your larger kinship network. You're, you're not only connected to people directly through your children, grandchildren, that sort of thing, but then through marriage, you've got, you've got some kinship. So you've got non-Christians, by the way, in your kinship uh, networks. And then you've got just your friends. And very often your friends are the people that you've met in your neighborhood, in your various neighborhoods, <clears throat> or in college and, and, and school, or um, at work, who have become closer and they're your friends. And that's your oikos. And the Bible doesn't see evangelism primarily as happening. We do know historically uh, the... Uh, the early church did not grow mainly through the more formal kind of evangelism. I know Acts shows us Peter and Paul and people like that doing preaching outside and 
that's great, and I'm sure it did happen. But most of the uh, historians who have really looked at how the early church grew said that uh, there was a lot of persecution. And uh, it wasn't even that easy to bring a non-Christian to church. Because you could bring a non-Christian to church and that person turn on you and everybody start to lose their home. By and large, the way evangelism happened was actually by not so much through the formal, but through the informal uh, talking of Christians in their oikoi, oikoi, I guess it would be, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in their networks. But that only happens if there's three things I already mentioned that are true. Here they are. Number one, you got to be a person of character. This is a, a painful thing to say. But one of the reasons why in your networks you may not ever be effective in, uh, as a witness for Christ is if you really don't look any different than anybody else. So what the historians will tell you, this is taken out of one book I found, that the early Christians were different from their neighbors in these ways. Okay, Integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy, chastity, and handling of adversity. Let me go through those. Slowly. First of all, Christians were people of integrity. They were known for being scrupulously honest, transparent, fair dealing, not open to bribes. Secondly, Christians were known for their generosity, which would mean that if you're a Christian employer, you're known for being generous with your uh, the salaries you pay, or generous with the um, um, uh, to customers. Or if you're a citizen, you're known to be generous and philanthropic and generous with your time and money for the needy. You're a generous person. So integrity, generosity. Thirdly, hospitality. Now, by hospitality, it's obvious. Believers were known to be very welcoming uh, to other people into their home. They were very open with their home and sharing their home and sharing their possessions with others. It goes along with generosity. Integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy which means believers were known not to be ruthless in business or personal dealings and unusually willing to forgive and reconcile. The fact is that if you, if you went and you know, burned down a Christian church or a Christian home, they didn't come and burn down yours. It just didn't happen. Integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy, chastity. Um, in the early, one of the main things about the early Christians was their sex ethic. Everybody knew about their sex ethic. And I can just tell you this. Uh, people know today what the Christian sex ethic is, that you can't have sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And that's everybody still knows that's the traditional sex ethic. And if you're not living in accordance with it, you can just forget having anybody take you seriously, a non-Christian, and talking about your faith. So integrity, generosity, hospitality, sympathy, chastity, and handling adversity. Christians were always been known for the way in which they dealt with tragedy or trouble or difficulty, and people will watch. So if you take those six things and you throw one more thing into it, if you're good at what you do, my experience is that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a, almost like a bottom line requirement that if a Christian is considered unusually good People are what they're well, they're known for their integrity, generosity, hospitality, etc., and they're good at what they do. They're, they don't do slipshod work. You now have what you, you haven't evangelized anybody. You now have a platform, and without it, you have no platform. You've got no platform because in your networks, you've got to be a person of character, number one, and secondly, a person of transparency. Now, this I'm only saying this because I just said it before, but it's so important. Uh, I said in the beginning that the gospel gets rid of that fear. 
that people are going to think of you as a fanatic. It's really a frightening thing, but here's the, here's the key. I actually don't believe in friendship evangelism, as it were. I believe in friendship. Because if you're friends with somebody and you're not hiding who you are, it will it be inevitable you'll talk about faith. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, look, here, if you're a Christian, there are Christians in whom Jesus Christ is way out here in the suburbs. You know that. They, they go to church. They say they're Christians. They do believe. But Jesus is not the way in which they make their decisions. He's not really the way in which they handle their problems. He's not something that they're, they're, uh, they're, they're not looking to him day in and day out just to live their daily life. He's out in the suburbs. But if Jesus Christ is downtown in your life, center city, there's no way just there's no way to be friends to anybody and hide that unless you are doing it deliberately. The, the, the opportunity to talk about faith should just be coming up unless you're hiding who you are, which you might be pretty good at. You know, I mean, we, I know we're, I got to be careful here because we are a multicultural group even here. On the other hand, uh, you know, as a white, you know, North American, and I certainly know as white British people, you, we can be really, really good at hiding those things. But the fact of the matter is, if you are a person of character and you're just not hiding how your life actually works, it'll be natural for you to be talking to people about faith. And then one more thing is just levels of intentionality. That is to say, at a certain point, I do think you have to say, I need to be getting intentional, not only about making sure that my network relationships are strong. You can be so busy. One of the things that you can be so busy that you actually, you really never spend time with your colleagues. You don't spend time with your geographical neighbors. You don't spend time with your uh, broader kinship networks. Uh, a Christian needs to say, I have to keep cultivating these relationships. I can't just let them go away. I can't take them for granted. So you need to be intentional in trying just to strengthen them. But then you need to be intentional inside to do at least things like this. Let people know you go to church, number one. Uh, be willing occasionally to really listen hard to a person who's having a problem. This is, uh, I still think women are better with other women at this than men are with men, nevertheless. Um, one of the best things you can do to get ready to be talking to people about faith is to be listening to them about their problems and not throwing in any advice yet. Listening to them for a fairly long time so they really feel like, here's somebody who cares. And then you, you have to care. You can't be doing it in order to share your faith. You've got to be doing it in order to love them. Okay. Now, ultimately, the best way to love anybody is to share your faith. But the point is, you're, you're not loving them to share your faith because that would be horrible. You're sharing your faith in order to love them, which means you're going, to, you're going to listen to them for a good long time. Let people know you go to church. Listen to them about their problems without jumping right in with a lot of advice. Number three, share some of the ways in which you, your faith, functions in your life. If you want to talk about an issue you're having with somebody, if you want to talk about a fear you had, if you want to talk about getting through a tough time, make some comment about the fact that your faith has helped you. Okay. Make, make some kind of comment to say that my faith has helped me. And then I think probably um, the last thing would be, at a certain point, just ask them what they do believe, what, where their own religion is, what their own faith is, and listen, without a whole lot of uh, you know, tweaking or editing or, or trying to discuss it, unless they, even if the first time you talk about it, they seem to want to engage. If I were you, I really would stay back and, 
find out really what they believe and not jump in right away and and get yourself ready for a future conversation and you'll be better off if you've had a little time to reflect on how you could talk to them. Now, if you have that kind of intentionality, that kind of transparency, that kind of character, then you will find evangelism happening in your networks. So there's why evangelism happens. There's... Um, where it happens. All right, now let's start talking about the part that <laughs> it's easiest to talk about, and that is, what do you say? So what is evangelism? Evangelism is uh, communicating the gospel, telling people the truths of the gospel. Now, let's, remi- let's remember something. The Bible never says, presents the gospel the same way twice, as far as I can see. You've got your... Uh, long versions of the gospel. To me, my favorite long version would be Romans 1 to 4. Slightly, somewhat less long version of the gospel would be 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 10. Then you've got, you know, you might call them uh, shorter presentations of the gospel like 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21 or Galatians 3, 10 to 14 or Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. You have three, four, five verses that pretty much pull it together. And then you've got what I guess I call sound bites, where you have really pretty much the essence of the gospel in a verse. So, of course, you've got, uh, first, first Peter 2, 24 and 3, 18. Uh, Mark 10, 45. Hebrews 9, 28. There's a number of places where you see the, the essence of the gospel is right there. Now, what does it mean? that the gospel is never verbally presented the same way twice. I do think it means on the one hand, we've got to be very careful about being rigid and saying, unless you say these exact words every time, you have not preached the gospel to somebody. It's pretty clear that the different presentations of the gospel in the Bible itself happen because the, the biblical writers are writing to different authors, I mean to different audiences, and the biblical writers are have different, uh, uh, d- different uh, themes are animating them. And yet, if you read all of those, if you went through all the verses even that I just mentioned, I think it would not be that difficult, and I'm going to give you my version of it, to say these are the themes that you've got to hit on if you're going to be teaching the gospel. Now, my experience is I've ne- almost never, even in my preaching, you know, I, tr- I try to be an evangelistic preacher, even in my preaching, Generally speaking, um, people come to put the gospel together in their own heads in a process. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this was C. Everett Koop, who was recently died, but he was the uh, Surgeon General of the United States, and he became a Christian listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse preach. He was a major uh, surgeon. I think he was the first uh, surgeon to separate Siamese twins and he worked at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And his wife, who was a Christian, would drag him to the evening service at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia during um, uh, the evening service, anyway. And he remembers the first time he came uh, not liking anything Bar- Barnhouse said at all. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the preacher. He also remembered that about a year later, he suddenly realized he believed everything that Donald Gray Barnhouse was saying. And uh, he thought back and he tried to say, wh- where, was the, where did I cross the line? He wasn't quite sure. Um, if I sit down, and I'm going to give you a, like a five, I'm going to give you five parts of what I would consider, f- five parts of the gospel 
that I think you have to get across to people if they are going to grasp the gospel and be saved and changed. Five steps, five aspects, five truths of the gospel. But here's what I have found. If I present the gospel to somebody, and even if they say, I get it, I want to become a Christian, I want to pray to receive Christ, if I've given them four or five points, only two of those points do they really understand, and God's drawn them in, and I'm not saying they're not Christians, but I'm going to have to keep on going with them because nobody gets all five at the same time. It just doesn't happen. It's a process. What do I mean by the five? Well, here are the things that I would want to get across to people if I'm preaching, or more likely, I'm trying to say this to you, if you have a friend and you're, and, and you're starting to have these conversations, you've got to get all five of these things clear in their mind. It doesn't mean before they become Christians even. Because very often they, they get two of them clear and three of them kind of fuzzy, but it's enough for them to say, I need Christ. Then you don't stop people. You never stop people. But on the other hand, I don't see anybody ever coming to faith, uh, to a clear understanding of the gospel like that. Uh, there's always got to be a process. Now, what do I mean? Here's, here are five things I try to get across. If I want somebody to really understand the gospel, I want them to understand the greatness of God, the seriousness of sin, the beauty of grace, the power of the cross, and the character of faith. Those five things. I'm always, I've got a little curriculum in my head, and I'm trying to get them through it. Seldom do I... Uh, and I actually, as you can see, you actually could just go right down the thing, right down this list with people if you wanted to. But uh, generally speaking, it takes the time to get a, get these things across. What do I mean? Okay, the greatness of God. Um, okay, so, uh, here's contextualization. If you're talking to a Muslim, you're talking to a Hindu. Uh, you're talking to a secular Anglo. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, in other words, d- depending on who they are, some of these parts, some of these five things are going to be way more difficult for them to grasp and understand than others. Contextualization is just simply, you work with your friend and you find which parts of, which parts of these five you know, they get and which parts they don't seem to get at all. And then you just try to get them to the place where they understand how they all fit together. So on the greatness of God, God is both personal and infinite, and we owe him not just obedience, but a relationship. Got that? He's personal and infinite. The reason I say personal is because a lot of secular young people, they want to be spiritual, and their understanding of God is more Eastern, and it's more, you know, the God is sort of in everything. But you've got to say, wait, this is a person. This is a person who loves and hates. On the other hand, there's the infinite and the infinite side is to talk about the greatness of him, you know, the massiveness of him. Uh, there's a, I don't know if any of you heard the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Christian Smith says that young people, especially in America, who say they're Christians, um, are people who basically say, I do believe there's a God, but I believe it's God's job if I'm a good person to help me with my problems and uh, you know he owes me a good life and at that point you're not seeing the greatness of God you're just seeing God as somebody whose job it is to make your life what good and if you don't feel like he's treating you as you deserve you can be angry at him he's personal and he's infinite and you don't just owe him obedience since he created you and he sustains you every moment of your life here's an example I would use I would say imagine a, a mother single mother and what she does is she, um, uh, she raises her only son, 
to by uh, by basically working on her hands and knees to make enough money to send him to a good school, and finally he goes to a very good school, um, and but afterwards he gets out and he doesn't have much of a relationship with her, and you would say that's horrible. Why he because she, he he owes her. She, he wouldn't even have a life without her. And so an illustration like that gets across the idea that you, if God really is this great, and he is your author, and he is, then you owe him not just occasionally to say, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. You owe him everything. That's got to be gotten across. There has to be that sense of, that understanding you owe him not just obedience, but actually relationship. It wouldn't be enough just simply for the, that young man to say, I can do anything my mother wants, but I don't call her, I don't go by to see her, I don't, I don't have any kind of relationship with her. You would say, that's wrong. And of course, this is wrong too. The greatness of God, seriousness of sin. Um, I'm going to give you, um, how do I say this? Um, a double, there's, it's a double-double. There's four things I got to get across to people about sin. Or it's just, well, four things. The one is sin is both objective and subjective. A lot of younger, modern people, uh, if you start talking about uh, their problems coming from not loving God, I mean, I, some of you know what I will do is I'll talk about idolatry or I'll talk about Augustine's disordered loves. I'll say, your problem is if you love anything more than God, you turn it into an ultimate, and it ruins your life, and it drives you. Most young, secular people get that. They understand that. So by looking at the first commandment, have no other gods before me, to say, you know what? If your job is more important to you than God, or if, if, a, if this love relationship is more important than a love relationship with God, you will, the job and that relationship will crush you and destroy you. And the Bible tells you about it because only God should have the highest, you know, the center of your life. Nothing else can bear being the center of your life. People get that. That's the subjective part. The part that they don't like very often is the objective, which is to say that if you have wronged God, if you have turned away from God and lived your life, there's a debt. There's a penalty. And you can use illustrations to simply say, if, you know, if somebody, if somebody um, uh, robs your home, and takes a lot of your possessions and, and, and destroys some of them. And then they catch them and you go to court and the man gets up in front of the judge and says, I'm really sorry. And the judge says, oh, if you're sorry, that's fine. And then turns to you and says, well, he's sorry. And you would say, uh, that's not good enough. I'm sorry, there is a debt here. There's an injustice here. Who cares if he's sorry? And so uh, you have to somehow get across the fact that it's an objective as well as a subjective to, uh, to sin. Otherwise, I just don't think the gospel understanding works. But here's the second double. Sin is not only doing bad things, but it's also doing good things for the wrong reason. Um, this is an extremely important thing to get across to a friend. Yes, they understand the idea, okay, if God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and so I mustn't do these things. And so if I, if I violate the law, of course, you know, um, I've transgressed the law. But what's difficult, uh, an aspect of the gospel which is extraordinarily difficult for any human heart to believe is, is the idea that your, even your righteousness is, is a filthy rag. Now, why would that be? It's not just true that when the Bible says your righteousness is a filthy rag that um, your best deeds are always partly imperfect. Of course they are. The fact is, and this is the way I would put it, I'm talking to somebody, I would say, if I was built, 
if I was designed to put God in charge of my life, then I do bad things. That's my way of rebelling against God. But if I do good things in order to put God in my debt or to feel good about myself or to tell other people, look what a wonderful person I am. In other words, if I do good things in order to get control of my life, so God owes me now. You see, I'm using obedience as a way of rebelling against God, of being my own Savior and my own Lord. And therefore, to really look at my life and say, I not only do bad things, but even the good things I've done for the wrong reason, which means I am a helpless sinner. I cannot save myself. Unless you understand sin is objective and subjective, and sin is not just doing bad things, but also doing good things, but for self-saving reasons, self-salvation reasons, ways of getting away from God, the way the elder brother does it in Luke chapter 15, they don't understand sin yet. So there's the greatness of God, the seriousness of sin, the, uh, the beauty of grace. Now here's, I go right to J.I. Packer's great chapter on grace. He's got a chapter in Knowing God on Grace. And he says, nobody understands grace unless you understand three background truths. If you don't get these three background truths, you will not see the amazing beauty and brilliance of grace. And what I'm going to show you is these three background truths, you have already laid them in seriousness of sin. If you explain the seriousness of sin, then you can turn and talk about the beauty of grace, which is at the very essence of the gospel. Do you know how often in the, um, the, the New Testament, when the gospel is just referred to, it's referred to as the word of grace, you know? I mean, to, at the very essence of the gospel is the idea that you're saved by grace, not by works. That's at the very, very heart of it. So you bring it out at this point by talking about the beauty of grace. And what are those three background truths? According to uh, J.I. Packer, the three background truths are number one, the moral, no, I'm using his terms just because I remember them, the moral in, ill desert of human beings, meaning we absolutely in no way deserve salvation. In no way do we deserve salvation. Secondly, he says the impotence, that is, in no way can we ever make ourselves into people who can deserve salvation. So not only do we not deserve it, but secondly, we can't possibly change ourselves. And thirdly, the costliness of grace. If you've gotten across the idea of the objectivity of sin, not just subjective, but objective, then you can say, do you realize that this means that since God cannot just shrug sin off, because there's an objectivity about it. Any more than you would not want to see that judge shrug off what that man did to you when they robbed your, your house. That means not only do you not deserve salvation of any kind, and you cannot do it yourself because you, you know, you've set this up under seriousness of sin, but in order for you to be saved, it's going to be a cost. And if you don't pay it, somebody else is going to have to. God's going to pay it. Then, number four, the power of the cross. And what I believe, even though I would never use the words in talking to people, you have to understand these two words, propitiation and substitution. you got to know them. If you don't understand them, then spend a little bit of time. It's not that hard. So that at least in you know what you're talking about when you're talking to people about the power of the cross. Propitiation is simply this, that God is angry at sin, He's partly angry because he loves you. You know, if you, um, uh, I hate to say this, uh, if my neighbor's child does something wrong, oh well, if my child does something wrong, there's a, there's a greater anger, but it's because there's greater love. 
if I really love someone, I get angry when I see anything that's hurting them, even their own behavior. And so on the one hand, because God loves, he gets angry. But secondly, he's a judge. We're not talking about emotional lack of self-control. We talk about the fact that he's a judge, and therefore there's a, 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 there's a judicial opposition. So there is wrath, and that wrath has got to be propitiated. That wrath has got to be dealt with. And so Jesus Christ comes and takes the wrath of God, but he does it as our substitute. That is to say, he comes in our place, and God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 that's still my favorite uh, verse to talk about because that gets me also into E, the character of faith. What I would say to somebody is when it says God made Jesus Christ sin, it didn't mean it made him sinful. It didn't mean it made him actually sinful. It means God treated him as if he was sinful. So that when we become the righteousness of God in him, what that means is the moment we believe, yes, eventually we become righteous. But the fact is, the moment we believe, if God's treating Jesus as we deserve to be treated, it means the moment we believe, God treats us as he deserves to be treated. With all the, with all the, the, the love and delight that, that his own son deserves, that's astounding. But because he substitutes for us, uh, because, because he puts it, substitution means that he stands in our place, but then we stand in his place. And that's got to be brought out. Otherwise, people don't understand the wonder of the gospel. And then lastly, the character of faith. What I mean by the character of faith is um, um, you, you need to explain to them the difference between uh, resting in what Christ does by faith and thinking that you're actually saved on uh, an off, an, a tremendous number of people, when they hear that, that, that you're saved by faith, what they think that means is you're saved on the basis of the quality of your faith. You've got to be really sold out. You've got to be really, really you know, um, uh, all for Jesus. And so they turn it into a new kind of works righteousness. And you've got to say, no, no, no. Um, illustration I love to use in, in a way is if you're falling off a cliff and you see a, um, um, a branch sticking out of the side of the, of the, uh, the cliff. And the, your only hope of not falling off the cliff is to grab that branch. The real question is, how much faith do you have to have in the branch in order for it to save you? And the answer is just enough to grab it. Because it's not the quality of your faith or the amount of your faith, it's the object of your faith that saves you, right? If the branch is solid, you can be filled with fears or you could be filled with confidence. It doesn't matter because you're going to be one, saved as much as the other. So it's not, the, it's not the quality but the object. You've got to say that to people when you're explaining that to them or they automatically, the default mode of their heart is self-salvation. They say, well, I've got to really work it up and I've really got to do all this. And that's the reason why uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say... Um, he had a question, you know, he was a diagnostician because he'd been a physician, and he had a question, and he would ask people who he wasn't sure where they stood. He would say, are you a Christian? And if they said, well, I'm really trying, but I don't know, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not what I should be, but I'm trying to be a Christian, he would always then explain that they still don't know what a Christian is. Because he would say, look, a Christian, it, uh, if the person says, oh, I'm not worthy, no, the gospel is, that of course you're not worthy, but in Christ you are worthy. He is your worthiness. And Christianity is a saying, you either are a Christian or you're not. 
you're not on your way, that shows you don't understand what? The seriousness of sin. You don't understand the beauty of grace. You don't understand the power of the cross. You don't understand the character of faith. Uh, here's one last thing to say, yeah, because I do have a little more time. Um, how does it happen? I mean, how do you get to the place where you can have a conversation like that? The reason I, I just did what I did, what I've always liked about being a, a preacher was I knew that people, if I could get them in once, that they would have a tendency to keep coming back, and in a way, I'd be having a conversation with them. I knew that I, they could, I couldn't possibly get across the greatness of God you know, personal and infinite and what we owe him. Couldn't get across the seriousness of sin, the objective, the subjective. Uh, I couldn't get across the beauty of grace. I couldn't get across those things in one sermon. I couldn't possibly do that. Um, I could try, but here's what I know. Even if I did, even if I just, because I only took about 17 minutes or something like that. Even if I actually did a sermon in which I try to go through it, I know that, that just because of the way people process things, a couple of those stakes would go down into their heart and they would say, I'd never understood that before. And the other ones, they would say, oh, I get that. But actually, they were kind of going over their heads. Uh, it's always over a period of time, like Sierra Coop, that one after the other after the other, these pennies would drop. One after the other, they would drop. And then finally, the whole thing came together. Sometimes they actually give their life to Christ and make some kind of profession in the middle of that process. But I, their life's not going to be changed until they get the whole thing. The reason I like that, the reason I'm telling you that, is basically your relationships are the same. You don't have to do it all at once. If they ask you for it, I hope that you actually could even do what I just gave you or something like that. And there are others. There are others. There's passages of the Bible. Choose one of those passages that I gave you that was like two, three, four, five verses or one verse and use it and explain it to people. That's one great way somebody says, what is the gospel? Another is to have an outline. There's more than one. But what you're really going to have to do over a period of time is you're going to have to, you're, in a sense, you're going to have to preach to them. I mean, don't preach at them. But you're going to have to do what I saw usually was the way people came to faith in Christ, which was they trusted you and you, and you, you basically laid the groundwork, building block by building block over a period of time. Now, the only other thing I'll say, and I'll be, this is probably, these are probably what you're going to actually ask me about. Um, if I'm working with a group of people and I want to help them really uh, bring the gospel to the people around them without compromising. The first thing I'm going to say is, there's probably two or three questions that you are desperately afraid of being asked. I mean, almost anybody I ever talk to, and I say, uh, you know, are you sharing your faith? And uh, um, uh, and I say, what are the two questions you're afraid to be asked? See, it's very often we don't realize the degree to which, especially in our culture now, there's a fear that somebody's going to get one, yes, one of these questions, and unless we say something really brilliant and we can't think of anything brilliant, they're going to nail us. So here's the thing you've got to do. And I, I'm, you know, I see you're, you're, you're just looking at you. You're, you live probably some different places. In your place, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, what are the... I think there's probably eight or nine questions that almost everywhere get asked, at least in the Western world. But you need to make sure you know the two or three you're most likely to get. And you know what? Spend time with each other, talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it until you say, okay, okay. 
I mean, it takes time to say, I hadn't thought of it. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. If there's seven of you together talking about it over two hours, two or three of you will come up with some really great ideas and everybody will go away feeling a little bit better. Then do it again and do it again. Now, let me give you what I would say the nine questions are that you've almost got to have some way of, of being able to deal with or else basically you're, you're not going to open your mouth or if you do open your mouth, it might be the end of, you know, the, of any conversations. Here's the nine, okay? One is homosexuality. In so many places, that's the first thing that happens. Somebody brings it, that up. Number two is, uh, I don't have to believe in God unless you can prove it to me. Now, again, I'm not saying this is everybody. I told you, you probably have two or three, and you say, oh, I don't think any of my friends would say that. Well, okay, I'm giving you the nine that as I get around the world, especially in the Western world, come up. Uh, number three, religion is science denying. It basically just shuts its eyes to, the, to science. Number four, religion is emotionally immature. Uh, some people need it, but not mature people. And, or we used to need it in, in when, when society was more immature, but we don't need it anymore. Actually, uh, Craig and I know that on the way back from uh, the uh, parliamentary breakfast, our cabbie you know, said, where were you? And my wife, of course, being the most bold of the evangelists in my family, said, my, my husband was speaking at parliament at a prayer breakfast. He's a minister. And so the, uh, the cabbie immediately said, Right? He says, you know, I thought religion years ago when we had to control people and we didn't have science and other things, people needed religion, but we don't need it anymore. Remember that? And unfortunately, and so Craig was closest, so he worked on the cabbie, but it was, we, it was not a very long cab ride, so I wouldn't hold uh, Craig responsible for it. But, <laughs> but that was his objection. He says religion is emotionally immature. Uh, it's, it's for immature people or it was for a more immature time in society. Number five, religion is exclusive and leads to violence. It's exclusive, that is to say, it says everybody else is wrong, everybody else is going to hell, everybody else is an infidel, and it can even lead to violence. That's number five. Number six, religious, religion is repressive emotionally and especially it's anti-sex. That's not quite the same as homosexuality, but because homosexuality just comes right out and you say, are you against gay people? And number seven, evil and suffering. How can you believe in a God, you know, of evil and suffering? Number eight, uh, I can't believe in a God who judges people and sends people to hell just because they don't believe the way they should. And number nine is, <laughs> this is a, a compound one, Something that, something that the church did. <laughs> it could be something massive that the church did. It could be the, uh, the, the child molestation scandals of a particular part of the church. It could be a horrible experience they had in their local parish. But something the church did, and there's your nine. And probably, if you say, well, I got two more, either, you know, okay, fine, break it out. It might be in one of those. But as far as I can see at this point, those are the ones that I see. The, only, the last thing to say is if you're fortunate and you're talking to people and some of these questions come at you, uh, make sure that you don't immediately try to answer them, but that you try to find out where the person is coming from. It is pretty remarkable, especially, by the way, if somebody says something about evil and suffering, just as an example. Very often, 
the question comes from a place of hurt and pain. Well, in fact, any of these questions could come from a place of hurt and pain. So when a person first asks the question, you know, puts that objection up, please don't say, oh, I remember what Tim Keller told me I should say, or, what, what, what our, or I remember what our little group decided we would say. Don't do that. Always try to ask questions back to them to find out a little bit more about where it's coming from. Uh, you know, a great, I mean, this is maybe an obvious example. Somebody says, I can't believe in a God who believes evil and, you know, who allows evil and suffering. And if you start to go into a philosophical tirade and find out, you know, that the, the, the person's spouse was killed in a car accident yesterday, well, you, you know, you deserve anything you get because you should have found that out. So never immediately ask a question. Find out the background. The only other thing to say is, in conversations, you say, well, how do you ever even get there? Let me give you um, nine themes. Yeah, I got time. <laughs> Mr. Incredible, I got time. That was Incredible's number one, not number two. I haven't seen Incredible number two, anyway. Uh, these are themes that come up in just talking to people because everybody's got to, ha ha you might say, here's another way to put it, if I had more time I would say, uh, you have to learn how to answer people's questions, which is what we just talked about, but you also have to learn how to question people's answers. And the, the answers they have is, what's your satisfaction? How do you get satisfaction in life? They have some answer. How do you get a meaning in life so that you can face suffering? How do you get a meaning in life that's strong enough that you can face suffering? It doesn't crumble. How can you get an identity that's not fragile or crushing because you're always feeling like, like I'm not good enough? How do you get a basis for doing justice that doesn't turn you into an oppressor yourself? How do you get hope in the face of death? How do you give and, and take Forgiveness. In other words, how do you give forgiveness and receive it? How do you give it if you're angry? How do you receive it if you're guilty? Okay. Number seven, how do you understand yourself? How do you understand how human beings are so good and so horrible? How do you, how do you even figure out what's, what makes human beings tick? Number eight, how, do you, how can you be free and still have love relationships since love relationships seem like you, you lose your independence? And uh, <laughs> how can we have a sex life that isn't a disaster? <laughs> now, the point is, if you ask them questions like that, they're going to give you answers, and then you can question their answers. Because the fact is that Christianity has, has infinitely better resources for, uh, infinitely better answers to those questions than any questions that they uh, answers that they have. So there is why it happens, where it happens, what evangelism is, and how it can happen. Thanks for listening to the Commission podcast. Check out and share a video version of this talk on our Facebook page. Just search for Commission. Next week, Richard Culkin, Executive Director of Commission, sits down with Desiring God founder. John Piper.